On this episode of DevTalk, I speak to Rafael Reischuk about security. Welcome to another episode of DevTalk. My name is Kerry Lothrop, and today's guest is Rafael Reischuk. Rafael is a colleague of mine at Zuka. He's head of cybersecurity services, but he's also so much more. Vice president of the Cybersecurity Committee Digital Switzerland, member of the advisory board of the Swiss Academies of Engineering, Engineering Sciences, and co-founder of the National Test Institute for Cybersecurity in Switzerland. Hello, Raphael. Hello, Kerry. That was that was a lot. Uh, we've we have worked together in projects, but you are in in Switzerland. How are things in Switzerland? How is this the situation? Is everybody still at home? Oh yeah, we totally locked down, so everybody's in in the in the homes and and you know working remotely, which is which is tired, which is getting tired for many people. But um, well, yeah, it also has benefits, right? <laughs> Yes, uh, we're both sitting at home and doing our recordings. Then, <laughs> um, you are at, well. From from the introduction, you are our security guy. Whenever there's a a question regarding security, we we come to you. Especially in German, uh, we have a one word for both security and safety. Um, it, it's a bit. It's called Sicherheit in German, and. Um, But I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners what what security is to you. What what's the definition of security? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. So security to me is always a team effort. So you mentioned I'm the security guy. Well, maybe I'm I'm one of the faces, but it's always a team thing. So um, I'm very happy to say that our team is growing. That that we are recruiting heavily. Um, and that we are that we are successful as a team. Now, what is security about? Many many people say security is a technology problem, and I believe that's fundamentally wrong. So security is is essentially a business property. What you want to do is you want to make sure that whatever service you run, whatever uh, thing you offer, whatever you're doing online, be it social, be it business, whatever, is secure. So there's no external threat coming to um, disrupt or disturb. Uh, what you were planning to do. And as such, it's not a technology problem. Of course, technology can be a solution, but it's 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 just it's just one um, out of many. And most fundamentally, security is about assumptions. What I mean by this is that um, people design a system and they believe the system is used in the way it has been designed. But while doing that, they often forget that systems are used in unforeseen ways. So people enter all kind of garbage in web applications. Um, they never enter what they are supposed to enter, be it because they, they, they do it on purpose or be it because they don't they cannot do better because they don't know what, what is expected from them. And this leads to all kind of vulnerabilities, to all kind of, of, of risks or, or incidents. And, and this is the reason. So, so designers are, are probably not anticipating correctly how a system is used or how a system could be abused and as such it's it's not a technology problem it's it's a human problem and i guess security has become a much bigger topic in recent years i mean um, thinking back to pre-internet times was it as big an issue as today or or has the internet brought us all together but also surfaced those uh, security concerns 
Well, whatever we're doing today um, is, is, is happening online. Most of the things are happening online, which means not only the good things are happening online, but also the negative things, the malicious things, the activities of the, of the hackers and activists. And um, as such, the connectivity that, that we see um, growing in the, in the last years is one of the fundamental reasons why uh, things are going wrong. Like, if you think about um, devices, right, like today, almost every device is capable of being networked, of being connected to other devices or to being connected to a gazillion other devices out, out there in the internet. Mm -hmm. And whenever you connect a device, what you do is essentially you connect the hardware. Now, on the hardware, there's running a piece of software. And if there's anything flawed or broken on, in that stack, well, then it can be abused it can be exploited. And this can be done now remotely, which um, makes the problem scale. And this is this scales now to a dimension where we are no longer talking about like physical security in the sense that you would have to to approach uh, a system like to be like physically close to the system to attack the system. Today you can control any any vulnerable, uh, for instance, industry control system remotely. And this makes it much easier. And this is also one of the reasons why we see many more incidents. I uh, I can think back of times of Windows NT. Um, we, I mean, computers were connected back then also. Um, and uh, But it seems like the, some of the systems that were used back then were well security was more of an afterthought i i remember there was uh, this this feature on windows nt that you could send it like a, a message that would pop up on everybody's computer which was really nice inside the company but then suddenly someone figured out you could just send that to any old ip address in the world and it would show a pop-up pop-up message on that person's computer and it, it seemed like when, when they when they made the feature they were not thinking that of the abuse at all uh, just uh, of the benefits, and th that's how how this happened, and that you you couldn't run an un unpatched uh, Windows at some point uh, for uh, and connected to the internet w without uh, these messages popping up right away. Yeah, that's totally true. So there was a, there was a huge um, shift in the mindset how, how we how we develop and how we use systems, right? So the the the, the assumption that that there could be some adversarial force. Um, working against us. This was not present in the early days. So when I when I when I think back, the one of the first um, Trojans we have seen, or, or probably the the, the, the very first uh, Trojan was the was the AIDS Trojan in 1989. And what happened is that um, if you had this Trojan on your machine after 90 boots, all directories were hidden and the file names were encrypted or locked. And if you want to gain access to the system, you would have to send $189 to a PO box in Panama. <laughs> and luckily, this was easy to overcome because there was very simple symmetric cryptography in there, which could be broken or which could, could be circumvented. And the funny thing at the time was the targets were members of the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. And in 1989, how would you distribute such a Trojan? Well, it was done via 20,000 floppy disks. Mm -hmm. And this is remarkable because, because since then, I guess there was no such case where, where people were shipping malware or software using like postal um, messages or like, like envelopes. And so these these are the cases, and, and nobody thought about this. But in fact, I guess ninety countries have reported more than a thousand cases affected, and and the, the biologist who, who did all that was arrested a year later at the Amsterdam airport 
which which is which is which showed that that something was coming and and um well since then a lot has changed people have designed systems in, in better ways but of course we are not there yet if you think about the internet of things there's still many systems that are totally insecure where there was essentially no threat modeling happening or no attacker model was considered i guess with that example uh, there was also no chance to uh, to to change the 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 malware i mean it, it you had to get it right the first try because you send it out on on those disks and if it doesn't work and um, or or people know how to circumvent it then you you can't you can't change it anymore and nowadays we we see uh, those threats adapting to uh, it's basically like like uh, i guess the, the the name virus is a good one it it, it tries to adapt and and find its way Uh, and and there are measures to to prevent that, but yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's that that's a very good observation, and and I guess it also brings brings me to to the question of what can we actually do uh, in order to avoid these these kind of of, of mass uh, incidents? Because so so this this biologist I was mentioning, he had the plan apparently to send out another two million floppy disks mm -hmm. of ransomware, <laughs> and. And, and the point is, what, what, what we need in order to, to counteract this is, is to um, have more diversity, right? I, imagine we had not only one system, one operating system, or, or one infrastructure, uh, one chip design, etc. Then it would be much harder for the attackers to cause what they want, which is denial of service in the end, right? You, you want an organization to be disrupted, As, as heavily as it can be, so that you can demand the ransom. Now, if the organization has multiple different operating systems, uh, like even things, facilities like printers, different vendors, and, and so on, if there's, there's a lot of variety, well, then it's much harder for the attacker to have a huge or a bigger coverage. And, and the, 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 the smaller your coverage, right, the harder it is to demand ransom. Um, and this... So this is this is um, definitely a trend that we are seeing. Okay, why is it that this is such an issue right now? It's a very interesting question. I guess the answer is manifold. There's there's many things. So first of all, security is not an easy property. It heavily depends on the context, and it's for those uh, theoretical guys. It's it's not a syntactic property. So the absence of malware, if you want is a semantic property. And because of the theorem of Rice, we know that there is no universal algorithm that can decide whether a, a specific semantic property is met or not. So in that sense, there is no universal antivirus that does not exist, that cannot exist. And malware, on the other hand, you can get that essentially, well, cheap or essentially for free um, in the darknet or in other locations. So this is why there will be no simple solution that, uh, that can help. The second reason is that there is an unfair advantage. Attackers benefit from existential quantification in the sense that the attackers need to find one spot in your application that is vulnerable. However, the defenders, they, are, they need to look at all the, the possible fixes, the possible flaws they have, and they need to fix them. So this is why there is never 100% security. In that sense, security is all about obtaining an advantageous position on the attacker's priority list. You need to be better than the others. You need to run quicker than the than the the, 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 the slowest member of your team or of your of, of, of mm -hmm. um, then there's another reason 
testing, I mean, you know, I know that you're doing a lot of testing and software development. Testing for functionality is positive testing. So you can check whether X features are present or not. However, for security, you try to find or to prove the absence of certain flaws. This is much harder. Proving the absence is not as easy. So you cannot just easily check that. And there was a study by GitHub in December 2020 that says a vulnerability in open source software goes undetected for 218 weeks on average before it's being disclosed. And this is just over four years, right? Imagine that. And that that's that's a, uh, a really uh, severe number. Mm. Then there's another reason we have increased connectivity. So the entire world is, is, is connected. Our society, if you want, has a software problem because everything is connected. Everything is, is, is software is getting the backbone of our society. And there's billions of, of hardware devices that are connected. And of course, that can be remotely controlled, but also remotely abused. Then there's another problem, and I'd like to mention this one specifically. This is the increased complexity. So systems and architectures are getting more and more complex, and we know complexity is the enemy of security. If you think about how many semiconductors have been sold in, in 2018, this is one trillion. So this is, this is a huge number. So essentially every device has a, a microprocessor and, and like a CPU. And of course, um, in that sense, they can be abused because today it's much harder to design a secure system, a minimal system, than designing a full-featured system. So for instance, it's much simpler, much easier for me to buy a Raspberry Pi and let this thing execute a functionality. But of course, if this Raspberry Pi is hacked, all the other things this Raspberry Pi could do, because it's Turing complete and it has lots of sensors, can be abused, which would not be the case if I designed a system specifically for the purpose I have in mind. And this is what Thomas Dullian calls the anomaly of cheap complexity. So complexity these days is is uh, getting cheaper and cheaper, right? Yeah. Another example is Microsoft Excel um, is is Turing complete and understands lambda expressions. So I don't want to explain what lambda expressions are, but I'm not sure how many people will be using this. So what the, what is the point why Microsoft is introducing it? And I know the guys at Microsoft who have implemented that feature and I know them pretty well in there. These are extremely um, powerful or, or brilliant guys. However, is that a relation we want to have between functionality and security? I'm not sure. Another reason is um, the rise of artificial intelligence, which um, of course helps on both ends, defending but also attacking. And think about Boston Dynamics, the robots they're building. Think about now you put some more artificial intelligence into impersonating people like deep fake uh, like like fake voice, fake uh, video, and so on. Well, then you can create a lot of damage. Mm. Now, there's one final reason I'd like to mention, which is monocultures and centralization. If I ask how many companies these days are using Microsoft Teams, or are using cloud services from Azure or AWS or so on. I guess many of those companies would say, yes, we are using it. And if I say, no, you're not using it, you're depending on it, then they would probably also agree. Instead, if I ask who is using a European cloud, I guess not too many would, would say, yes, we do that. And this monoculture thing has a, has a huge risk in case of a catastrophic failure because um, it's a concentration that is, that is never healthy. So there's an example, 80% of the world's almonds are produced in California. Well, you can say almonds are not, not critical. Well, if something, if bad weather conditions come to California, then probably the world has no more almonds. 
Another example is the pharma market. It's dom dominated by a couple of companies, Novartis, Merck, Pfizer, and so on. Th these are not too many. If any one of those gets hacked or if anyone has a problem, well, then probably the entire world will suffer. And there's a bunch of other examples, like if you think about mass media, um, for instance, in the in the US, there's only a couple of them, they have a share of, of 90%, and, and as such, they are a systemic risk. And the question is, what can we do against them? And, and I, the main point here is is resilience, right? Mm -hmm. The biggest opponent of, of resilience is the efficiency we try to build in the systems. We are efficient, we want to have a multi-purpose computer because it's, it's cheaper or it's simpler to set up, but in fact, it neglects that we need resilience. And there's a couple of cool examples. Um, one example I like to mention is um, just-in-time manufacturing. It's highly efficient, but it assumes best-case logistics. Now we again at what it assumes. Once this is not given, well, we, we have a problem. Same thing with modern workplaces and shared facilities. They're highly cost-efficient, but they also they assume best-case connectivity so that, we, that everybody can communicate. There's many more examples, even ones that have an impact on safety. For instance, the Boeing 737 MAX. It was the fuel economy and that quick time to market that made this airplane successible to malfunction of just one sensor. And the result was there were two horrific crashes and years of grounding. So this is something we should, we should never forget when we design a system. Yeah. On the other hand, there's some examples where efficiency... Um, where, where, where reduced efficiency has high resilience or high security. Think about our democracy. Democracy is highly inefficient, but it handles corruption fairly well. In general, federalism is, is, is inefficient, but in some cases uh, it, it may be helpful. One last example is human reproduction. Human reproduction is highly inefficient. It takes, it takes months, if not years, if you find a, until you find a partner well, then you get married and then, you know, you get a child probably at some point. It, it takes quite some time, at least nine months, but probably oftentimes many more. And, and, and this, is, uh, this is good because otherwise human reproduction, if this was done at a beer tonight, well, then uh, I guess the world would look much, much different than it does today. So the question is, how can we balance efficiency and resilience, and I guess this is one of the biggest questions we have in the future, and we have to be aware that this is one of the reasons why we are in the situation right now. So this was a long answer to the question, but um, it's important to understand why we are there where we are for the insecurity. I mean, I, I talk about security all the time and at, at conferences. I usually focus on, on mobile security, though though I've done done it on a broader scope. I'm, I'm trying to, get to to wrap my head around how how to get people uh, started to, to getting that that mindset to look at potential vulnerabilities in whatever you create. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, you know, so what people often say is, well, we need more awareness, right? They need awareness programs and all these kind of things. But in, in fact, they are they do not help. They, they do not help sufficiently. And the point is what, what you need to make sure is you need to make people get involved, right? So for instance, if, if, you, if you hear from the news that some company was hacked, you will say, yes, yet another company. But if your colleague tells you, hey, my computer was, was totally locked, I could no longer work with the thing, then you start worrying. If your neighbor tells you, hey, my Tesla has been hacked, I could not start the engine, I could not drive to work or wherever I wanted, then you start worrying once you have a Tesla, right? So you need to make sure people are affected. People are 
directly affected and people see the consequences. And this is why I love the paradigm that's called hack yourself first. When you start hacking yourself, when you ask somebody to hack into your system, and this would be a white hat hacker, so somebody who has no malicious intentions, then you would all of a sudden realize, well, there is a risk also for myself and I should act. And this this shows to me, and we're talking about like, like awareness campaigns a lot, this shows to me that um, we are much more successful when we can show to the people, look, you you have a risk and you need to address that risk. And, and, and it's it's nobody else than you, right? Learning or training is something you have to do by yourself. Nobody can help you with that and, and you cannot shortcut it, right? You have to exercise, you have to train. And um, and, and that is, that is an important observation people only get once they are really personally affected or somebody very close to them is affected. Yeah, I, uh, when you say hack yourself first, I remember... Um, this is a, the name of a course also that Troy Hunt offers, one of the uh, prominent people in the security community. And he came to the Zulka office in Zurich maybe five years ago. And Yes, it was five years ago, yeah. Uh, I was uh, lucky enough, enough to uh, notice that uh, there, there was an invitation sent out to the, to the Swiss employees and I, I signed up. And I, I got in. So, uh, and and this this course was was great because it was uh, I think it was two days, and he gave us all the tools that somebody with malicious intent would have, and let us use those tools against uh, this this website that he built that had really mm-hmm. bad uh, security uh, issues uh, like like SQL injection or. Uh, there, there were lots of things that could go wrong there, and and it was it was a workshop where we we were actually using those tools, and we saw how easy it is to take like a little weakness uh, and and exploit that and and get into the system and get at other other user information. So that that was really eye opening. Yes, it is eye opening. It is eye opening for developers. But to quote Bruce Schneier. He says, there's a fundamental difference between crashing your computer and losing an Excel sheet and crashing your pacemaker and losing your life. So the situation gets worse once, as you mentioned, once we connect devices and once we we make systems control our lives, right? Think right. about autonomously driving cars or airplanes or whatnot. So whatever we control from a distance um, makes us vulnerable as a society. And 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 you're right. As a developer, you, you see that if when, when when Troy presents you an application that's vulnerable, you realize well, there's something that could go wrong. But for many people who are not developers, this is this is not so obvious. Yeah, and and uh, I mean we have such projects, right? Where where the med- medical projects where uh, people are actually attached to our device, and uh, if it if it goes wrong there, then then that's a major issue. And, a lot of times, the, the 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 one way of keeping that secure is by not connecting it to any network at all. Yeah, that's that's totally right. And and we know that if you have two thousand lines of codes, we we know that on average there is between one and a hundred vulnerabilities in the code. So and, and this is something we cannot change because we are humans, and humans make mistakes. And um, so this situation will not improve soon, right? So what what we have to think or what we have to assume is that there is a breach or that there will be a breach, right? And we, this is why we need to think about holistic security approaches. Um, and there are paradigms like zero trust and others that that try to um, to emphasize this, 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 this important insight, right? That 
there will not be any piece of software that does not have any flaws. And there are famous examples, right? For instance, um, even in the Linux kernel or in the Linux world where um, we, we sometimes find uh, bugs that, that have been there for 20 years or more. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so this is this shows to me that whenever our society starts relying on software more and more, and this is the trend we, we're currently seeing, the more we are vulnerable as a society. And this is a completely this this requires a complete rethink of 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 our um, security posture of our risks, um, because I mean traditional risk management, if you think about earthquakes or fire or whatever does no longer hold for the cyberspace right i mean it never hold for the cyberspace but but now it's 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 just well the mathematical models need to have um, a lot of adaption so that this is accurate mm-hmm. well th- that made me think about you know storing passwords i know when i wrote my first web application php3 it was probably the year 2000 or 1999 and uh, I just stored my usernames and passwords in the database in the, the MySQL database and I, I didn't think about maybe that was not such a good idea we see that such practices are actually still happening people assume oh it, it's okay to store it in, in plain text because uh, only the root user has access to that uh, file or or to that database and they're not anticipating that that some somebody might get a hold of that through some other way that they they have not thought about and mm-hmm. um, so so what we do nowadays is is hashing of passwords right yeah I mean you, you made a fair point right this is exactly what I mentioned in the beginning these are assumptions right you have the assumption that only the root user has access to that database well that that, that assumption may be true in 99% of the cases. But uh, once you, I don't know, um, w- once you replace your hard disk in the server and you, you don't uh, correctly invalidate the old one, well, then probably somebody else has access and so on. So there are many, many examples where this assumption is wrong. And it may not be wrong, as I said, in 99% of the time, but there may be some rare situations or when you have a vulnerability in, in, in the access control mechanism, whatever, that somebody else gets access uh, to that um, database. So so this is why um, what, whenever you can, try to use a stronger mechanism. And for passwords, of course, hashing is much better because hashing, as we know, is a one-way function, or at least it's assumed, again, an assumption that this is a one-way function so that um, it's not easy to uh, revert that operation. So when you have the hash, you cannot have the password and and as you usually do not authenticate with the hash but with the password you need the password to have access to the system so this is why this is one simple way of course it's not sufficient there's many many more to to storing passwords but that's one important aspect yeah well if your password is is password and uh the the hashing algorithm is md5 then uh that, that doesn't help either because everybody knows the hash of the word password is this uh, what they found. So, yeah. Yeah, but the problem is, in this case, would just be the password is weak. And if you have weak passwords, it, it doesn't matter how you protect, protect them on the server, right? <laughs> and then people can, can just try. And I mean, mentioning Troy Hunt, he, he did a good job in, in introducing the the Have I Been Pwned database where uh, people can query or where also uh, nation states can query uh, and can, can get actually get access to the data so that they can tell if if um, societies or individuals are at risk because a password has been leaked. This is this is good. And 
but I mean, the, 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 again, it's 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 a multidimensional problem because it's it's a responsibility of the system administrator, of the system designer, but also, of course, of the user. I mean, I am responsible myself for having, for instance, a different password for each service I'm using, and I can tell you, I'm never reusing any password. Um, that's the safest way for me to make sure, even if a password, uh, my password on LinkedIn is leaked. I, I'm sure an attacker cannot do anything, any harm except for LinkedIn. But if I assume LinkedIn tells me that there was a breach, well, I can change that password and then I'm still sort of safe. So that's responsibility on my end. And, and I know that many people are not aware that this kind of responsibility is, is highly important. And I'm assuming you're using password, uh, a password manager for Actually, that? I'm not. And, and the reason is <laughs> pa password managers have, have one problem. Um, you have one location where you stall all your secrets and that's not enough the problem is also many of the password managers are synchronized between multiple devices so which mm -hmm. means by definition the passwords leave the device or leave one of the devices even if this is encrypted but still there can be flaws and we have seen in the past that there are a number of flaws in password managers which which is a which is a big problem and i don't want to trust any password manager so what i do is mm -hmm. i have a system where I can remember or where I can essentially derive a thousand passwords, different passwords for each service without writing down anything. And this is a system um, I have a YouTube video on, um, but it's a system that is that is so simple that I really just don't need a password manager and still I have strong passwords, so long passwords that have enough variety. Um, and to me, this is the far better option. Okay. Uh, okay, you're not going to tell us the, the exact algorithm for this, uh, but how how to how, how to come up with your own uh, algorithm for creating these passwords? Well, I can tell you the algorithm. I mean, I can easily tell you the algorithm because the the, the secret must never be in the algorithm. So it, it, we we should mm -hmm. be able to publish all our algorithms on on GitHub or on, on on even on Facebook or LinkedIn. It doesn't matter because the algorithm per se must never be the secret, and mm -hmm. this is one of the fundamental. Uh, one of the fundamental insights um, from the from the 19th century, um, and it's attributed to a cryptographer called Kerkhoff, Auguste Kerkhoff, and he said the only reason why a system is secure is because there is keys involved, and the reason is simple because it's much easier to replace a key than replacing an algorithm. So assume my, the security of my system was based on the confidentiality or the privacy of the algorithm. Well, once the algorithm is leaked, and remember the discussion um, that was in the in the U.S. for exporting ciphers for a long time in the in the eighties mm -hmm. or nineties. So, if if the algorithm is leaked and the secret is in the algorithm, well, then you have the problem because you cannot easily replace an algorithm by another one, maintaining the same semantics, of course. But it's much yeah. easier to replace a key by a different key because a key is just a string of bits, essentially. So in, in mm -hmm. that sense, what I'd like to say is um, I can easily publish this algorithm and I describe it on, on, on YouTube, on, my, on, the, on the video. And of course, it has sort of a master key or master ingredient um, that I'm not telling anybody, of course. And, and from that, I go and derive other passwords. Okay. Yeah. After talking about security at a talk, uh, this has happened to me more than once. People come up to me and they ask, how do I obfuscate my code with such and such technology or my, my mobile app code? Because I, I usually talk about mobile apps. And then I say, well, why do you want to obfuscate the code? And then the answer is like, 
uh, while we're working with patient data. And uh, my, my alarm bells go off and um, it, it's, it's uh, answering questions and getting a response. I'm trying to, trying to, trying to push that person into the, into the direction to understand, or at least this is my, uh, my point of view, is that it goes in the, the same direction. You, you, it, the security of your, uh, your application should not depend on people not knowing how it works. I mean, you should mm -hmm. be able to just put the, the source code of your application in on, on a public repository and have people look at it and they, sh they should all say, oh, this is really secure. And it doesn't help us that we know how it works because uh, the, the security, the, there is really cryptography being used. There are, there are secrets that are not inside the app. Um, and, and it is not, uh, it, it doesn't really add much value to, to obscure what is happening. Exactly. And this is the future. <laughs> so for instance, last week, the Swiss federal government, um, released, um, information about the e-voting, um, approaches in Switzerland. I mean, you can think mm -hmm. about e-voting, whatever you like, if this is good or bad, this is a different story. However, I I'm totally, um, convinced that the only thing to get system secure is by releasing the, the source code or any co configuration details and letting hackers look at this. Because this way we have many eyes looking at the problem and looking at the vulnerabilities and then they can report it. Because the bad guys, well, eventually they will, they will get um, the algorithm anyway or the configuration. So there's no point in keeping this confidential. As you say, the only thing to keep confidential are the secrets that are used to protect the actual data or the the um, the authentication information and what whatever is stored in the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, people sometimes have the feeling that they they have something to hide in their code, and and uh, I, I guess it makes sense if if the, your um, if all, all the innovation of your app is inside your code. It is like the algorithm that you've developed, then it might be worth securing that in some way. But then you might actually want to think about maybe not doing that on your device and pushing that, that functionality to the cloud. And well, this, the same for, for like, like secrets. Um, you have, if there is one secret that, that is the, the big secret that you, your app needs to know to access something, uh, then and you put that inside your app, then it's it's no longer secret. Uh, it might be yeah, a true. better idea to put that somewhere else. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, when we're talking about innovation or about uh, protecting intellectual property, of course, then this is sort of a different story. Then you need different mechanisms. I, I agree with this. So, for instance, if mm -hmm. you have an artificial intelligence solution where you have specific parameters you don't want to reveal to your competitors, well, then of yeah. course you need to protect them. And then, as you said, there there are other means of doing so. You. And you can also think about trusted execution environments or we have mm -hmm. secure enclaves that store information so that even with physical access, you cannot um, extract the information from there. Um, there's, there's, there's a couple of, of, of technology out there that you can use. Um, but this applies, I would say, only to a minority of cases. In, 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 in the most case, in, in the most times when people, as you say, tell us, like, we must not publish the, the source code because it contains confidential data or patient data or anything, then you're totally right. This is, this is a situation we, we must change. Um, this, this should no longer um, be the case, at least not in 2021. So why exactly do you think obfuscation is not something that you should do? Well, the problem with obfuscation is 
it, it, there's no real threat model. So, I mean, it's clear that a compiler or an interpreter needs to run the source code and it needs to be executed at some point. And essentially, when I own a device, like my smartphone or my computer or anything, then I want this device or the processor on the device to be able to execute the program code, right? So it, there's, there's, it, it cannot be protected. The semantics must be accessible at some point without mm -hmm. any access control. And so this is, the, this is the reason why whenever you have obfuscation, there will be a means, information theoretically speaking, there will be a means of de-obfuscating or of, of getting the actual um, semantics out of the program. And you, you cannot... You cannot change this because this is a feature. You want the code to be executable. Um, okay. So, of course, what you could do is if you have pre-shared or pre-exchanged secrets, what you could do is you could encrypt the source code and send it to the device and then make sure that the keys are in memory or on, or on some enclave so that they can essentially decrypt the source code prior to execution. But, mm -hmm. but um, again, it, it has a number of assumptions or requirements, namely that you have exchanged keys and so on. So in a way, if you want the, the hardness assumptions you have for obfuscation, they're, they're meaningless. They're, they're not well-defined. They're not justified. And as such, um, you want the program to be executed, and so you cannot protect it by obfuscation. It's just a question of how hard it is to, to um, reverse engineer the functionality. And a mm -hmm. compiler can do it, hopefully, within seconds or milliseconds, at least. Otherwise, it would, nobody would use the application. Um, and in that sense, there is no protection. So if you want protection, you need to have keys. Um, and, well, keys is a different story. I mean, you can, of course, have the program code that you want to protect on a server, and then you can restrict the access to the server. Uh, that's a typical thing of API keys usually, um, and mm -hmm. that's something that helps. Right? And and those keys should not be shared. Uh, I mean, have have uh, more keys. Have a key per user, or have a key per user that's only valid for an hour. Yeah. So the, so the, so the main problem is when you think about apps we are distributing today through app stores and and on websites uh, where we have millions of users downloading uh, an application well you cannot make sure that each user is downloading a different application where there's a different secret Im embedded this is this mm -hmm. doesn't scale and the second thing i mean i can of course extract any secret that is in that is in the, in, in the source code or in the, in the application so you cannot ensure this the only thing you can control is that whatever the user enters as information is different per user or is, um, is, is protected by making sure that the user memorizes the information, the secret, or that the user has a password manager or whatever the user is using. But then you, have, then you make sure that you are authenticating the user who is sitting in front of the machine instead of the system. Now, of course, when we talk about the Internet of Things, where many devices run unauthenticated or where there is no user interaction on the device, the situation is, is much worse. And what you can do there is, well, of course, the devices have different properties, right? So each device has a different serial number or they have other properties like the, the default state of the memory and so on. And this kind of information you can use as entropy for making sure that there is a deterministic key or deterministic let's say, piece of information that is derived mm -hmm. and it's individual per each device, different per each device, but still it's deterministic in a sense it's the same all over again. 
And if you combine these secrets with a clever way, for instance, through hash mechanisms, well, then you can make sure that it's hard to guess anybody else's um, information or anybody like any other device's information. Um, and, and as such, you can make sure that you can at least identify a device with a certain probability. And this is a mechanism mm-hmm. that helps. And by the way, then the source code that is run on all the devices is the same. It can even be published. It's the same, but it's hard to guess or to predict uh, an identifier like a MAC address. Well, MAC addresses are sort of easy, but there's other other identifiers that you can use, and they have sufficient entropy so that the devices are can, cannot be uh, you cannot guess the, the identifier of another device. Yeah, we have projects where we we create those devices too that that get sent out, and if it's like a really high volume, um, less than a dollar uh, product, then then of course you you have to have have a mechanism of, of having everything um, having each device have the same content and and yet be able to identify them. Uh, but if you have a budget, then there, there's we have other options. Like you can have a, a chip on the device, like a trusted platform module, or or secure storage, where there's no way of of getting information out of that chip without uh, basically taking it apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and in manufacturing, if you have budget uh, or if, you, if the the price is higher, then you can have the budget to uh, put individual keys on each of these devices, and that that will also uh, be, make it much harder uh, for somebody to, um, well, uh, pretend that they are your device. Yeah, that's that's totally true. But as you say, the, the essence is in having different keys, right? Different yeah, information yeah. on each of the devices. And this holds for humans mm-hmm. and this holds for services, this holds for apps, this holds for devices. So there's 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 many, many fields where you want variety or where you want to have diversity in authentication. Yeah. Well for example, or how I always like to think about it is what would happen if this important information got lost or in, into somebody's hands. For example, um, in in mobile apps, we always have these like like API keys. Like you go to the Google website and then you say, "I want to use Google Maps in my in my application," and then they say, "Great, here's your API key." And then I embed that API key into my app, and every time Google Maps backend is called, this API key is passed along, and I I can be sure that if somebody would invest some time, they would be able to figure out what that API key is, no matter how hard I try to, to, to hide it. But at some point in memory, you will have the, the decrypted API key for Google Maps that the, the application has to pass on to the, to the API. And um, somebody, if somebody puts, puts enough effort into it, they will be able to extract that key. And then you have to think about, okay, is this something that is okay? Um, what what would happen if somebody had this Google Maps API key? What could they do with it? And if the conclusion is, oh, well, it couldn't do much with it or it wouldn't cost me any money, then it might be okay to embed that into your app. But if if you have like an, an API key where each call costs you money, then it's probably a bad idea to put that in, into your app and ship that out to all the users. And we had something like that where we, we had a, uh, flight data backend that we want to query, and each call was like one US cent. And uh, w- what we did was 
we authenticated the user in the app against our backend, and then we sent the request to our backend, please tell me, um, make this call to the flight data backend, and then we get the response. Uh, and and uh, the the secret for making that call to the flight data backend was only in our our cloud backend, and so we could limit how many calls people could made make. We could also uh, cache the calls, so it had lots of advantages. Well, it, it was secure because the we didn't ship out the API key everywhere. Mm -hmm. But see, this is a nice example where the business case is misaligned with the security, right? So what you want to have is you want to offer a service that is potentially for free or it's not authenticated, and then you will be the middleman who have to who has to pay for 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 the service that you are receiving from Google, for instance. And mm -hmm. and this is the this is the exact exact problem, right? So this is why you want to have end-to-end -end authentication, and it can even be anonymized, right? Because sometimes you're not interested in the information who is logging in or who is using the service. So you just want to make sure that this is a legitimate um, user. And this is why you can have something like a proxy mechanism or there's, there's other mechanisms that, that would sort of translate the authentication information to make sure that there's uh, no abuse of the system. I mean, nobody would offer a service free of charge that, that can be that can be abused or that, that can be um, copied in the real world right in the real world this would this would this would not happen there would always yeah. be rate limitings and these these rate limiters they, they would come naturally in the, in the real world because you would have to be physically present or there's there's many many factors and these factors you don't have in the digital world and this is why it, it needs to we need to think uh, in different terms and also we need to align our business cases that's that's something many many people forget because whenever a service seems to be free we know that it's not free be it that we pay with our data <laughs> or be it that somebody yeah. else is paying or be it that that there's a, f a fundamental flaw in, in the business case because google or what whoever is offering a service is charging as you mentioned is charging you for the service and um and in that sense if you say this is free for our end users well then you are paying the delta and the delta can be can be multiplied or can be amplified and mm. this is also a reason why why many attacks on, on like network security are based on amplification, right? So so you yep. you send some information and you get back a lot more, and if you redirect that lot more, then somebody else is causing the trouble, or somebody else is is sort of is sort of generating the traffic that somebody else would pay for. So this is this is why well authentication is is I would still say an unsolved problem for many uh, many situations. And when you have individual secrets per user, how, how do you store uh, store that information? I mean, um, prompting the user every time to enter their their full password will probably lead to people picking weaker passwords. Yeah, I mean, so there, there's many authentication mechanisms today that you can use. So you, you can get rid of passwords altogether. So you, so you can use, for instance, ambient voice, ambient sound uh, for authentication i mean of course you cannot identify a user but you can make sure that the user is the same as he or she was a couple of minutes before you mm -hmm. could also have uh you could also look at, at behavioral aspects um in the sense that the, the way i move my mouse or my the way i type would identify myself and of yeah. course uh, some people are concerned about privacy there but there's also privacy preserving mechanisms that make sure authentication is working so it's not that you need to prompt people for their passwords. You can also rely on tokens or any other technique that just make sure once you have identified once 
you stay who you are. Nobody's taking over or hijacking your session. That is oftentimes mm -hmm. the, the most important thing of authentication because identification is the, is the thing you do at the beginning, but then you want to authenticate. You want to make sure that the session is is kept alive and, and not all hijacked by anybody. <laughs> I just had that today, but uh, my touch ID on my on my Mac gave up and it disappeared from the control center completely. And I suddenly realized how often I I'm using this feature of, of basically when you when you start up your computer you you have to type in your full password and each successive uh, authentication or like when I uh, uh, have a very sensitive app I just use my fingerprint and that's that's very convenient and uh, yeah you miss it when it's gone that's true and and the interesting thing is um, <laughs> so the this these biometric authentication mechanisms. Um, they are fundamentally different than password authentication. So, for instance, when I when I log in to a web application using my password, what is happening is the password is checked at the at the server, right? So, at the other end, at the end, mm -hmm. who actually wants to make sure it's me, Raphael, who is talking to the service. If I use biometric authentication, for instance, Face ID or Touch ID or anything that uses biometric information. The story is different because then there's no end-to-end -end exchange between what I enter, which is, for instance, my fingerprint, my iris or anything. This is not end-to-end, -end, so it does not go to the server for various reasons. And one reason is that the, the transformation that's happening must be robust. So I may look different each time I look into my camera for face authentication mm -hmm. or my fingerprint can be, can be sampled in, in various different means. Now, what is happening is the authentication is actually done on the device. So the device knows, okay, that is the fingerprint I have seen before. And now there's a trust layer established between the device and the service or the, or the server. And then would say, look, I can tell you, this is the user that is supposed to, to or the, the user who has registered before. And there's mm -hmm. a couple of ways this is done. For instance, you could decrypt a password that is used then for authentication between the device and the server and this is sort of decrypt by um, by looking at the um, at the fingerprint or whatever information is there so this means the trust model changes fundamentally because a service now has to trust the device and no longer the user right yeah and this is yep. this is a yep. fundamental change people often don't don't realize and it has a lot of security implications um and you're right i did not realize that but but that's true mm -hmm. and this is and, and this is has many benefits as you say because authentication is much much quicker and it's it's just convenient to do so however um that if if we have a mistake in the authentication mechanism or in the in, in the in the translation process well then this means that um many things can go wrong that we do not anticipate as of today yeah yeah <laughs> so where do you see this security topic heading in the next years is is are we just doing incremental changes or is something fundamentally going to change that we won't use passwords anymore or something like that yeah so there's there's many uh, many answers to this question so of course on the research side new primitives or new technology will come up at the horizon and we will be uh, making this these systems more efficient and and they will help us in various means so for instance if you think about quantum computing um, we we see that quantum computers are moving from the research labs to the cloud service providers and mm -hmm. you can essentially um, run your source code on a, on a, on a 
quantum computer, of course, there's not too many qubits, but but this will this, this will increase. This has many good aspects. It also has, of course, devastating aspects once um, asymmetric uh, encryption is broken and so on. So this is this is certainly something that that will happen, and uh, this is unstoppable. So this is this is this is happening. And if you think also about quantum communication, quantum optics, there's a lot of good progress um, where interception or man in the middling is, is is getting much harder. What I'm more concerned about is um, is the trend we have seen in the last years, which is the commercialization of cybercrime or cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. People have realized that you can really make good amount of money, uh, not only with Bitcoin because of the um, the price uh, changes. It's more that you can use technology such as Bitcoin and other things to demand ransom from companies. Of course, you have to hack them first and you have to cause some damage, but it's actually, you're getting a lot of money. And, and there's a study um, being released that um, says only, I guess it was 8% of uh the of 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 the businesses that paid ransom got their data back and this shows to me that people are paying a lot and when we look at the average ransom that was paid per incident this is 170,000 US dollars <laughs> this is just very recent numbers and um this is this is very severe because um people have realized you can make money with cybercrime and it's probably much more fascinating to do cybercrime, which is much more lucrative than than you know do, doing a robbery or against a bank or anything, right? Because well, this is sort of dangerous, and the cyber cyberspace is not that dangerous if you're an attacker because prosecution um, is is well not at the same level as the attackers are, and of course they are they are doing a far better job than like five years ago. Mm-hmm. But um, but this this trend will continue. So this this means we will see many more incidents, and also means that more and more companies will start thinking about their responsibility. So I'm specifically talking about the board of directors. They will they will understand what kind of responsibility they have. It's also because the law or general regulation demands for them being held accountable. And and this this means to me that that um, we will see a shift there. So business priorities will change. Um, security issues will become more important for many companies. And this means also the invest, like how much money you spend in the, in the protection of cyber incidents uh, will also increase. Because you know that saying, people say, well, strong security is expensive. Then the answer is, well, no security is much more expensive. And this yeah. is something I, I see we will really see a shift there. We will see much more investment, much more spendings on on making sure security is 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 getting is getting the, 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 the sufficient tension it should get. Well, and then there's also of course the technological point of view, right? Um, so there's many paradigms that will come. For instance, the zero trust paradigm will be established more and more. So this means you don't trust anybody. You're you're verifying or authenticating each piece of information or each request that you get. You assume that the attacker is also in the system, it's in the organization, and it's not uh, waiting outside the firewall. So there's there's many many things um, that 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 will come, um, and I'm I'm looking forward to it because I, I believe it's just a, a fascinating fascinating area. Yeah. Well, we'll see what the future holds. Um, I, I think you're not going to be out of a job anytime soon <laughs> with your expertise. Yeah, I guess yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and I mean, one problem, of course, is that we see many uh, consultants and people who, who jump on the train of, of cybersecurity, although they do not really understand the, the matter. And this is, this is also problematic because then we have solutions that are declared to be secure, but in, in the end, they are not. And it's not because somebody missed a particular corner case. It's just it's because the, the process, the underlying process was not solid. And this worries me because um, there's so many applications out there. You can use dedicated search engines and you find so many flawed applications um, and this will not stop that quickly. Yep. Okay. Well, for us developers, there's there's always uh, going to be a lot to do. And I mean, the the main responsibility lies on the developer, right? You you can't, I mean, the user shouldn't pick ABC as their password. And um, maybe they shouldn't enter their clear text credentials on a website that that isn't encrypted. But but everything else is is basically uh, you're in in the developer's hands, and they, they have a big influence on on if anything is secure there. Yeah, that's true. But it's not only the developer, as we said, right? It's it's also the, the threat model or the the purpose of the application, like the communication that is happening mm-hmm. between the application developers and those who are actually using the system. So with, with which mindset has this application been built? And if all the constraints uh, are sufficiently specified and everybody who is actually using or or running an application um, is, is aware and, and sticks to the rules, well, then also the world would be in much better shape. But again, communication there is also something that, that, is, that is lacking and that is not, um, well, not, not helping us uh, in the way it should. Yeah. So people need to talk, right? It's 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 a human thing in the end. People need to talk and make sure we're talking about the same thing. We have the same threat model. We have the same attacker model. We have the same understanding mm-hmm. of, of what we believe security. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights and on one of my favorite topics today. <laughs> well, thanks to you, Carrie. This was was a very interesting session. Uh, we didn't talk about, by the way, we didn't talk about artificial intelligence, which ah. is also something people talk about a lot. <laughs> I, I guess we, we should also quickly mention that uh, artificial intelligence is, is is good and also bad for cybersecurity, right? There's many uh, detection mechanisms that, that rely on artificial intelligence because mm-hmm. you have huge data sets. You cannot look at uh, from a human perspective alone. But at the same time, if you look at deep fakes and the authentication problems we have discussed, well, then deep fakes, you can essentially fake video, audio, everything, um, this will this will lead to to big trouble, and I'm I'm sure social engineering will see new dimensions there very soon. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess uh, artificial intelligence can also be used from the from the attacker side. Um, yeah, <laughs> interesting. Exactly, and it it is yeah it is already been used, but um, probably not in the wild. Um, but um, I guess it will become commodity, so you can get anything as a service. So you can also get deep fakes as a service and then you can mimic your CEO or everybody, anybody else, um, any, any popular person. And, and if this becomes available as a service, well, then it's just a question of money and I will get, I will bet it, it will be cheap. So you can easily afford it. And yeah. um, this, this has devastating consequences because, well, the, the technology is so good that you have really hard time detecting what is real and what is fake, right? Yeah. Huh. Okay. We, we will see. Thank you so much for getting us all a little bit afraid, but uh, maybe a little bit more cautious. So thank you for being my guest today. Thanks, Gary. It was a pleasure. And 
uh, hope to talk to you soon again. Yes, we, we have to meet in person again. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Thank you, Carrie. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Dev Talk, and we'll see each other again in two weeks. Bye-bye.